It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. We've been walking through a, a Christian, the Christian Mindset series. It's been about a month since we've talked about any of this, so I apologize for all that. Uh, but I just want to get back into the passage and uh, just really excited to look at Philippians chapter 4 with you. <clears throat> Again, just to give some backstory, this came out of my own desire to say, okay, in this culture, in this day and age, and all the stuff that's going on, uh, what or how is a Christian supposed to think? Uh, what, are, what, are, what is our mind supposed to be upon? And when the world is full of all this lawlessness and fear and craziness and COVID stuff, how is a Christian supposed to think in any circumstance, in any situation? And I just thought, personally, it would be fun to, to walk through Philippians chapter 4, since the main thrust of Philippians chapter 4, specifically verses uh, 4 down to verse 9, is the think on these things, that this is where our mind is to be. And again, this is a theme that kind of flows through all of Philippians, but it's kind of coming to a climax here in chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I <clears throat> just want to read uh, starting with verse 4 and just read down through verse 9, just so it's fresh in our minds. Uh, Paul writes this, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let everyone come <clears throat> to know your gentleness. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will protect your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good rapport, if there is anything virtuous, if there is anything praiseworthy, think on these things and do those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Uh, what an incredible passage. <clears throat> Again, if you want to go back into some of the earlier studies, we talked about this idea in verse 4 that there should be a normal reality of our lives. It's rejoicing. That it's not based on circumstance. It's not based on situations. It's just there's a constant undercurrent of rejoicing. It's, a, it's that constant leaping for joy. It's realizing that regardless of what may be pressing down upon you, that there should be this buoyancy uh, in your soul. And then he says in verse 5, let everyone come to know your gentleness. And I don't have time to unpack that again, but gentleness is probably not what you're thinking. So go back and listen to that message. <clears throat> then he says, uh, the Lord is at hand, be anxious for nothing. And wouldn't it be an amazing thought if <clears throat> there was no situation and no circumstance in our, <clears throat> sorry, all that fire is like <clears throat> in my throat, I apologize. But wouldn't it be amazing if there was no circumstance and no situation that would cause you to be anxious? That there is no reason to worry. There is no reason to fear. There is no reason to be in turmoil. What on earth would that look like? <laughs> Especially now, <clears throat> with all the political stuff going on, with all the COVID craziness still going on, with all the uncertainty going on, what would it look like for our lives not to be anxious? And then Paul, which is what we're looking at this morning, is setting up a contrast. So in the last <clears throat> message that we gave uh, several weeks ago, we looked at the idea of be anxious for nothing. 
And again, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. But Paul is setting up in a contrast. He says, there should be nothing in your life that is causing anxiety. Well, what should be happening in my life? Oh, in everything, pray. So you got to see the contrast. Paul says, in nothing, have anxiety. In everything, pray. So there should be no moment in my life where I'm experiencing anxiety. And there should be every moment of my life where I'm experiencing prayer. You getting this? And I really like, uh, one, one guy said it this way. Uh, Paul learned from experience that the way to be anxious about nothing was to be prayerful about everything. I was like, that was a good way of saying it. Now you realize this is not the only time Paul talked this language. Uh, he was constantly, this was a constant tone. Uh, this idea comes up in the book of Ephesians. Uh, maybe another one that we typically go to is the First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 passage. Right, where Paul in First. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, hey, rejoice always. Again, it's that same, same tenor as our passage. Pray without ceasing. That there should never be a moment in our life where there is not cease, uh, this, this uh, I didn't say that well, but there should not be a moment in our life where there's a lack of prayer. That there's a constant communion, a constant intimacy, a constant richness of your life in prayer. And then Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of Christ Jesus for you. Wouldn't it be neat if that was the reality of the Christian life? That you're rejoicing always, you're praying without ceasing, you're giving thanks in all circumstances, and you're just living this reality of life focused on Jesus. So in our passage, again, this is not, this is not a new concept for Paul. Paul's been saying this stuff. Hey, rejoice always. Hey, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, pray. I think that's really important. So what I want to do is <clears throat> I want you to look at verse 6 again with me. It's really interesting that Paul is using four specific words to talk about the state of a Christian's soul. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, making requests. And what's interesting is the prayer, supplication, and making requests are all synonyms. They all mean the same thing. Pray. So pray, make supplication, make requests. What are all those? That's all prayer stuff. And then in a fun turn of events, he adds in with thanksgiving. And we're, we're going to look at the thanksgiving thing in a couple weeks. But I want to look at this week specifically at this idea of this bundle of prayer. Again, he says prayer, supplication, and making requests. And so I came to the passage going, what's the difference like, why would Paul <clears throat> use these three words or these three ideas for prayer? Like, what is Paul really trying to say? And let me, let me flesh this out for you, or let me walk through these words, and then I'll try to give a thought <laughs> on maybe what he's trying to say. <clears throat> the word prayer in this passage means prayer. That's powerful, wasn't it? That was really good. Or it means the place of prayer, which I want to actually look at next week. I want to talk about this idea of the place of prayer, meaning your life. But it means prayer or the place of prayer or to speak to God or to ask God for something. And what one of the ways it was defined, which I actually really liked, was it describes a believer's approach to God. So it's like the big umbrella idea of how we approach God. How do we approach God? In prayer. So this is the means or the avenue or the 
what it looks like, this is the tenor, whatever that kind of language you want to use, that's this word. The word supplication or petition, depending on your translation, that word means request, the prayer itself, the supplication idea. And by the way, the word supplication, because I had to look it up. <laughs> like, I knew the idea, but I'm like, supplication? How do you define supplication? Like, how would you define supplication? Exactly. So, <clears throat> so I decided I'd ask Webster what he thought. Here, here, was the, here was the definition. I thought it was really good. It's the action of asking or begging for something earnestly or humbly. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And so this is emphasizing then, it's the requesting an answer for a specific need. It's the actual request. So if, if the word prayer is like the big umbrella, this is what we're doing in the prayer. We're making supplication. We're, we're making a request. Now, here's the problem, though. Though one seems to be a big umbrella and the other seems to be the more specific request that we are making. In other words, again, that, that supplication idea is I'm, I'm making a request either on my behalf or on, the, on behalf of somebody else. Right? It's, it's that kind of an idea. The problem is, is when you turn to Paul's writings, Paul uses those two words interchangeably. So sometimes he says prayer, sometimes he says supplication, and then he just switches them around. So is one an actual umbrella idea? The other one's the specific thing? Maybe, but then Paul's like, it doesn't matter. I'm just talking about prayer. And you're like, well, which one? It seems like Paul's saying it doesn't matter. <laughs> which convolutes the whole thing. So it just seems like he's repeating, if I can read the passage this way, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and prayer with thanksgiving make requests. He's just saying pray. So it seems, again, the emphasis is in, in all of your praying, whatever and however you pray, don't be anxious. It's, it's, does he, do you see the emphasis then? So again, if you want to describe it as an umbrella idea and the specifics, I think that's legitimate in the passage. But regardless, because Paul uses it interchangeably, it just seems like he's saying, I don't care how you pray, when you pray, what you pray, it's just when you pray. And again, it's, he's emphasizing this idea of the prayer thing. Now he adds on to that this idea of make requests. And I thought this was cool. The word request means the things that are actually asked for. It means requests or it can mean demands. So these are the specific and uh, or, or, or speaking definitive or specific things. Uh, these are the actual requests. And you can say, how is that different than the supplication? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you want a picture, it's like the prayer is a big umbrella. Then what am I doing in the middle of that big umbrella called prayer? I'm making supplication. I, I'm, I'm bringing requests. I'm bringing these requests in a means of supplication unto the Lord on behalf of myself or somebody else. So it seems like he's going from bigger picture down to the essence of it, down to the very specific requests. But I actually don't think it matters. Because the reality of this whole passage is this should just be the tenor of your life. And the fact that he's using three synonyms is like he's just overemphasizing the idea of prayer, 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 prayer. So, so get the concept then. Paul says there is nothing in your life that, that should cause anxiety. But in everything of your life, what should there be? Not just prayer, but like prayer. 
And there's a triple emphasis on this idea of prayer. In other words, Paul's saying even just in the language, don't have anxiety, have prayer. But even in, in this, there is this overemphasis on the prayer thing. Does that make sense? He's not emphasizing anxiety and fear and worry and trepidation and da 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 da, da and then pray. He's saying anxiety, prayer, prayer, prayer. So do you see the emphasis in the passage? This is, hey, don't get lost in the fear and anxiety and what that may entail. We understand what that stuff is. So what, hey, there should, nothing be, there should be nothing going on in your life. There should be no circumstance or situation that produces fear, worry, and anxiety. Well, what should the tenor of my life be? What should the focus, what should the drive of my life be? This overwhelming pressing in with prayer. And mixed with this idea of prayer is this attitude or this position of the heart called thanksgiving. And again, I'll flesh that out in two weeks, which is fun because we're leading up into Thanksgiving. So we'll be talking about Thanksgiving right before Thanksgiving. By the way, this word does not mean turkey and stuffing and potatoes, though it could be a great definition uh, in my mind. So, So again, get the whole flow of the passage. Paul says nothing in your life should cause anxiety. Everything in your life should cause prayer. So bad things in your life should cause prayer. Mediocre things in your life should cause prayer. The mundane things in your life should cause prayer. The good things in your life should cause prayer. Hey, when you get a raise at the job, that should cause prayer. Hey, when you get in a car wreck, that should cause prayer. When you miss your flight today, that should cause prayer. When you make your flight today, that should cause prayer. So everything in your life should, should be driving you under this reality of prayer. Now, if you're like me, I'm sitting there going, okay, Paul says, pray. And what am I doing in the middle of this prayer? I'm making supplication. I'm, I'm, I'm really petitioning on, my, on behalf of myself or someone else. And what am I doing in the midst of the supplication? I'm making individual requests. Doesn't God know all that stuff already? So then why on earth do I have to bring him my requests? Isn't that a funny thought, though? That Jesus wants us involved. He wants the relationship. Which means it's not just, hey, God, I know it. You already know what I'm going to ask for, so just do it. I mean, if a little child went to their parent and said that same thing, that seems miserable. And I'm not a parent, but I'd be like, no. <laughs> you know? I know you want the toy, but because you're demanding and just saying, whatever, I'm not going to give it to you. No, I'm, praise the Lord, I'm not God, right? So he knows our needs. He knows our requests. And yet he invites us in to share with him in the middle of those. But as I was just processing this thing through about why, why does he want us to bring the requests, I came across two great quotes. I just want to give them to you because I think it just gives a great just tone. Uh, one of the scholars that I was looking up said this. He says, make your request known to God as though God needed to be informed is but the apostle's quaint way of expressing, get this, the very personal nature of prayer. He is saying, in effect, 
That prayer is a conversation with, a plea directed toward, a request made of, and an information given to the supreme person of the universe who can hear, know, understand, care about, and respond to the concerns that otherwise would sink people in despair. So do you know why we bring our requests to God? Because it's expressing the very personal nature of prayer. Uh, the other guy that I was reading said this, Why then are the requests of the Philippians to be made known to God? Not because he is unaware of either their petitions or their content. Rather, it is by bringing to him their requests, which reflect every possible cause of anxiety, that they are laying out all of their troubles before him and casting all their cares upon him. In doing this, the Philippians acknowledge their total dependence upon God, and at the same time, they are assured that he knows their earnest desires. He knows your earnest desires. But there's something amazing when you take your requests and you say, God, here is my petitions. Here are my requests. One, it's intimate. It's very relational. And he wants to bring you in on that, which I think is really significant. But you realize that unless you actually bring him your requests and hand off your requests, he knows them, but you're still holding on to them. Does that make any sense? In other words, God, you know my requests, so deal with them. But by saying that, I'm still holding on to them. So what would happen then in prayer if I would actually take my requests and say, God, here are my requests. You handle them. Then I can actually release my requests, which means I don't have to live in the anxiety or the fear or the foreboding or the worry or the whatever. Uh, that word there for requests in our passage, uh, it, it's interesting. Again, it has this idea of the things asked for, it's the requests, it's the demands, it's, it's, it's that kind of stuff. It's the specifics. That word only shows up three times in the New Testament. And of course, you know, as, as, as a student of the word, you know, anytime you come across a word that only shows up a couple of times, that kind of highlights something for me. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So I want to go track down the other uses, usages or the passages where that word is used and see the context. So thank you for asking to do that. Let me give you those contexts. One of them, of those three usages, is obviously is in our passage. So we're going to skip that one. So let's look at the other two really quickly. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus is standing before Pilate. And of course, Pilate interrogates him and says, I don't find any fault with him. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the crowd rise up and they make a request, a demand on Pilate. And what was the request? What was their demand? Crucify him. And so in Luke chapter 22, sorry, Luke chapter 23, verse 24, it says, So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. That's our word. Isn't that interesting? So here are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and here's the big crowd, and they are making a demand upon Pilate. And what's the demand? Kill him. And Pilate said, fine. I will grant you your demand. But that's our word. It's that word request. It's that word demand. The other time it's used, which I actually think is more illuminating for us, uh, is in 1 John chapter 5. Now listen to this verse in light of our passage in Philippians. I love this passage. 1 John chapter 5 Verses 14 and 15. 
John writes, this is the confidence that we have toward him. Do you realize that you can have confidence in Jesus? And what is our confidence? John says that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests, that's our word, that we've asked of him. So John says, do you realize that we have confidence in Jesus? Why? Because we know that he listens to us. And if we're asking according to his will, when we bring our request to him and we're the requests are in alignment to his will, we know that he hears and that he will do. Isn't that an awesome thought? And it produces a confidence within you. Why? Because the one to whom you are making requests actually hears you. Uh, you, you go up, uh, uh, you start sending, I'm making this up, but you start sending letters over to Warren Buffett and you start making a request of him. You have a lot of money. Could you donate some of that money to a, this good cause called Ellerslie? Because we could really use it. And I can make petition after petition, request after request, and my assumption is that letter will never get up on his desk. But the God of the universe the one who holds all things in his hand, <clears throat> if I make a request and I give a petition and it's according to his will, I have confidence that he hears that. And by the way, folks, Jesus is better than Buffett or Gates or Trump. And isn't it a great thought that the king of the universe actually hears you? And that should produce confidence in you. Why? Because we can literally take our request and bring it to him, and he's going to listen. And as a good, loving father, he's going to say, yes, no, depending on the requests. And again, if he says no, it's because he has a bigger yes in store. He, he's leveraging and moving something for his purpose and his plan and his glory. So I can rest in making my petitions known to him. But unless I make my petitions known to him, I'm still holding on to them. Uh, we looked at this a little bit last time, but I just want to bring us back into this. And it's been a month, so you've all forgotten anyway. When you look at this idea of bringing your request to God, there is this tone in the Old Testament that really helps us understand this idea. And let me just give you a couple of quick passages. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8, it says, it is the Lord who goes before you. Again, Moses is reminding the Israelites, you're about to enter the promised land. Let me give you some reminders. <clears throat> and he says toward the end of the book, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Do you, do you realize that you can rest in his provision? You can trust him. You don't have to fear. You don't have to live in anxiety. You don't have to live in foreboding. You don't have to live in... Why? Because he goes before you. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. You can trust him. I love Psalm 37, and I, I've been bringing this up quite a bit lately, but Psalm 37, verse 5. The psalmist says, Commit your way unto the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. Commit your way unto the Lord. Trust in him. 
And again, that idea of commit your way into the Lord, the idea is you have a burden and you're to take your burden and roll it upon the back of a beast of burden. Right? So I come up to you and I say, look, you need to carry a thousand pounds across a hundred miles of desert. Can you do it? No. Even if you had muscles, no. You can't do that. Why? Because as strong as you may be, a thousand pounds across a hundred miles of desert would be impossible for you. So what do you need to do? Oh, you need to take this burden and you need to roll it upon the back of something. It's called a beast of burden, right? A camel, a donkey. And isn't it amazing that when you take your burden and roll it upon a beast of burden, you can then take the reins and lead that beast of burden across a hundred miles of desert. And in that sense, you are carrying a thousand pound burden across the desert. But the weight isn't upon you. And the psalmist says, you know what we are to do with all of our burdens? You know what we are to do with our way? That we are to take our burden and take the way of our life and literally roll that upon the Lord. And God becomes our beast of burden. Which sounds like it diminishes him. But he, he says, hey, look, I can carry it for you. You can't do it. Check your pockets. You don't have it within yourself. So you're never going to be able to pull this off. You're never going to be able to do it. So how on earth are you going to live this impossible life that you're called to live? God says, let me do it. Would you take the burden of your life and roll it upon my shoulders and then you can really do it? That's an incredible thought to me. I love what Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, said about that passage in talking about this idea of committing your way unto the Lord and rolling the burden upon him, Spurgeon says, Commit your way unto the Lord. Roll the whole burden of life upon the Lord. Leave with Jehovah, not your present fretfulness merely, but all of your cares. In fact, submit the whole tenor of your way to him. Cast away anxiety. Resign your will. Submit your judgment. Leave all with the God of all. How blessed must he be who lives every day in obedience to it. Peter picks up on that same theme in 1 Peter 5, uh, 5 verses 6 through 7. Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That same word anxieties can be translated cares, worries, burdens, anxieties. So Peter is saying, look, would you cast all your cares upon the Lord? Hey, would you take all of your burdens and throw them upon the Lord? Hey, would you take your worries and throw them upon the Lord? Hey, would you take your anxiety and throw it upon Jesus? Why? He cares for you. And if he cares for you, he's willing to carry it. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. If we let him carry it. And by the way, that word cast your cares, the cast has this idea of to throw something. Just take it and throw it. And the other time this word is used in, in the New Testament is in Luke 19, verse 35, where they grab the donkey, the colt, they bring it to Jesus, and they cast, they throw their cloaks upon the donkey. And then Jesus sat upon it. Do you know what you're to do with all of your cares, all of your anxieties, all of your burdens, all of your worries? Just like the disciples took their coats and threw it upon the back of a donkey, a beast of burden. Do you know what you're to do with all of your cares, anxieties, and worries and fears and why don't you throw them on the back of jesus he cares for you 
So come back into our passage. Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 4, do you realize you are to, there's nothing in your life that should produce anxiety, but rather everything in your life should produce prayer. And again, don't worry about the nuance of prayer or how I should pray or what it should look like or how it should sound like, but everything in your life should be driving you to this reality of communion and intimacy and trust and dependency upon your God. Wouldn't it be an amazing thought that everything in your life drove you to Jesus? That it wasn't just the bad stuff where you're like, God, I need some help today. What if everything pushed you to Jesus? I've used the illustration before, but, you know, here's, here's God and here's me over here. If, if the circumstances of life get in the middle of us, uh, if, if temptation gets between the two of us, it's going to put pressure, which means it's going to pull, push us apart. But what would happen if here's Jesus and here's me and my whole desire is to keep pressing into him so I'm getting as tight and as close with Jesus as absolutely possible? Then you realize what begins to happen is there's no space between us for the circumstances, the trials, or the temptations of life to get in between, which means it's going to have to be over here. But it's still going to put pressure which means when it starts putting pressure, it's only going to drive me closer to Jesus. So wouldn't it be amazing if the trials and the issues and the circumstances and the, the realities and the temptations of life would never get between me and Jesus? Because again, every time it gets between me and Jesus, it's, it's always going to push us apart. What if the trials and the circumstances and the, the temptations of life, I was so tight with Jesus that when the trials come, it just pushes me to Jesus. Wouldn't that be an amazing thought? Uh, in our longer program, I usually talk to the students about this idea of what does it mean to be obsessed with Jesus? I mean, what would it honestly look like if your whole life was wrapped up in Jesus? And I, and I give an illustration of what, what, if, what if everything in your life could actually press you to him? What if you would actually involve Jesus in the everyday moments of your life? What, what would it look like not just to spend the 15 more minutes in prayer in the morning in Bible study? What if your whole day was just soaked and saturated with his person? You realize the reality of the new covenant is the God who was always out there in the Old Testament has now come to live in here, which means everywhere you go and everything you're doing, Jesus is going with you through the into one of the Holy Spirit. And if that's true, you could carry on a constant conversation with Jesus. You could pray without ceasing. And by the way, the idea of praying without ceasing is not mumbling underneath your breath all the time. Right? Because it's not Jesus, 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 oh Jesus, 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 oh Jesus, 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 oh Jesus, oh Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Because without ceasing, it's going to be a really long time to be mumbling. The idea is, what would have happened if you had constant communion, intimacy, relationship with Jesus? See, there should, nothing be, there should never be a moment in your life where you don't have this communion, intimacy, relationship with Jesus. He lives inside of you through the indwelling of his spirit. So talk to him. Involve him in your everyday moments of your life. Hey, if you see a sunrise, why wouldn't you go, wow, Jesus, you are an artist. 
I've never seen the same sunrise twice. Look, every morning you pull out your, 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 your paints and you, you paint this thing. And it's only there for a couple of minutes and you like whoosh, wipe it away. You're like, missed it. Sorry. I'll have to wait till tomorrow. I mean, why wouldn't you just involve him in everything? I mean, obviously we should involve him in the bad stuff. Lord, I just got a flat tire. I need some help. <laughs> Lord, I just stubbed my toe. Or whatever it is for you, right? So why don't, why don't we involve him in the bad stuff? Now, that's usually when we think about involving him. Why? Because the rest of the time, I can handle my own life. And I can do this on my own. So Jesus, just sit over there. I'll tip my hat to you, you know, every morning before, before meals and right before, right before bed. But let me live my life. But when I have a problem and I can't handle it, I'll come to you. Why would we do that? Why, why doesn't everything cause us to pray? The good, the bad, and the ugly. See, why, why wouldn't we, as we're driving down the road, just have this constant conversation with Jesus? Wow, Jesus, you're so good. Why, why isn't it when you're, when you're in the checkout line, why don't you involve Jesus in the checkout line? Jesus, I got about 30 seconds with that person checking me out. And I realize that when I get there and they grab my stuff and boop, boop, boop kind of stuff, that I'm going to have about 30 seconds to say something to him. So I don't know how you want to use this time, and I probably don't have enough time to share the gospel in its totality, but maybe could you, let me encourage that person. This has to be a hard season. Plexiglass everywhere, masks. So maybe could I just encourage them, and would you begin to put people in their life that would proclaim the gospel, and would you start turning their hearts, and would you start softening them to the reality of Jesus? Oh, hi, good morning. Yes, I'm now in front of you. And, and even as you're talking, why don't you be praying? Now, you need to focus on the conversation. But why doesn't the undercurrent still be prayer? Someone comes up and says, hey, I've got a question. And immediately I start fasting and praying. Unless I'm currently eating something that I don't fast. I just pray. But someone says, hey, i got a question for you. And my first thought is, Jesus, I'm going to need wisdom. Because I don't want to try to answer this in my own. And I'm fully paying attention to the question. And I'm fully engaged. But there's an undercurrent on my heart that's just, Jesus, I need you. Lord, would you give wisdom? Lord, would you give insight? Lord, could you speak beyond even the question to what they actually need? I don't know that stuff. See, why wouldn't you involve Jesus in everything? Why wouldn't you take Jesus down to your job? Well, they don't let me. It's against the law. They can't stop you. If you're teaching public school, why don't you get there before the kids get there and just pray over every seat? and then make the kids sit in all that. I mean, if, you have, if you're a parent of a teenager, we'll pray for you, but if you're a parent of a teenager, why wouldn't you just go to your kid's room and just pray over that room and, and then make them sleep in it? <laughs> but why wouldn't you just bring Jesus to your job? Why wouldn't you bring Jesus to your family? Why wouldn't you just bring... That doesn't mean you have to be talking about him every moment of the day in the sense of out loud to the people around you, but you should be talking to him every moment of the day. And isn't it interesting, Paul is setting up this contrast, and he's saying there should be nothing in your life that produces anxiety. Rather, everything in your life should be producing prayer. So not just in the moments that have a bait for anxiety should I pray, not just when there's a moment of temptation for worry, not when I look at the situation, and oh, there's a potential moment of fear, I guess I should probably pray. 
This is what would it actually look like if I just always prayed? And you realize that if my focus was always on Jesus, there's no room for anxiety. Hey, if my whole life is wrapped up in prayer, there's no room for worry. Hey, if my whole life is wrapped up in Jesus, I can actually rest and trust and depend in the reality of my life with Jesus. So therefore, there's no room for any of this stuff over here. So again, you got to get the emphasis of what Paul is saying. It's less, don't have anxiety. That is what he's saying. So I'm not, I'm not downplaying that. That is what he's saying. But the emphasis of the passage, it's don't have anxiety. Well, what should my focus be? Prayer, intimacy, communion, relationship. Get wrapped up in Jesus. Just go crazy with Jesus. And he uses three words plus thanksgiving to talk about this reality over here. And if I have this reality where I'm just soaked and saturated and just constantly doused in Jesus and my whole life was wrapped up in prayer and, and intimacy and communion, there's no reason I would live in anxiety. Does that make sense? Wouldn't it be interesting? I was thinking about this last night as I was falling asleep. I said, Lord, I would love my life to be an island of tranquility amidst a sea of turmoil. Like, what would that look like in our world that is full of turmoil, that your life becomes this island of tranquility, an island of peace, a place of prayer, which we're going to talk about next time. But what would it look like if your whole life was just this, you were in a position of prayer all the time, and you just become this island that just moves around so it's like a floating island. I don't know how this works. But you become this moving island in this sea of turmoil that is just a place of tranquility. That everyone else could be concerned. Everyone else could be freaking out. Everyone else could be living in lawlessness and fear and worry and whatever. But you are focused on Jesus. And wouldn't it be neat as you move into this sea of turmoil that all this stuff just, it doesn't disturb you. It pushes you to him. And then causes you to pray. So in one sense, as you begin to pray, it's like your island of tranquility begins to expand and you're taking over more and more of the sea of turmoil. Because wouldn't it be neat if you were so at peace with Jesus and so wrapped up into Jesus that people wanted to start hanging out with you because there was calm, which produces what in their life? Calm. And what if you begin to bring them into the reality of Jesus, which expands the island idea? Maybe a bad illustration. And I was really tired last night. So who, this could be just, could be a random thought. But my prayer last night as I was falling asleep was, Lord, I want to be an island of tranquility amidst a sea of turmoil. What would it look like if everything in your life would press you to Jesus? What if every circumstance, what if every situation, what, what, if, what if there was no worry, anxiety, and fear in your life? Which begs the question, is there any anxiety, fear, and worry in your life? And we have an upcoming election in a couple of weeks. Is that producing fear, turmoil, worry, concern? Are you at peace? Is this causing you to pray? Well, what happens if, what if that causes you to pray? Well, what about the economy? What if that would cause you to pray? What about Black Lives Matter? What if that would cause you to pray? Antifa, what if that would cause you to pray? I won the lottery. 
I don't know if you should be playing, but, but what if that would cause you to pray? I just got a raise. What if that would cause you to pray? My family is going through crisis. What if that would cause you to pray? I lost my job. What if that would cause you to pray? I got, I, I got a promotion. What if that would cause you to pray? Things are going really well. What if that would cause you to pray? I'm going to have a long work day tomorrow. What if that would cause you to pray? Oh, I get off early today. What if that would cause you to pray? I have to get on an airplane. What if that would cause you to pray? Turbulence. What if that would cause you to pray? No turbulence. What if that would cause you to pray? Are you getting this? Paul says there is nothing in your life that causes anxiety. You're a Christian. So there should be nothing in your life that's causing worry and fear and anxiety. So if you are experiencing fear, worry, and anxiety, what's, what's the solution? What's the answer? Jesus. Get wrapped up in Jesus. Focus on Jesus. And isn't it interesting that anxiety turns your focus inward? Because it's about me controlling and me handling and what am I going to do and, and what if and how am I going to fix it and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But do you know what trust does? Do you know what prayer does? Turns your focus outward. I know who my God is. I can trust him. I can relax. I can calm down. I can, I can release this. So what if I would take every burden, every worry, every anxiety, and roll it upon the back of Jesus and just release it? And what if I would come to him in prayer and give him all my requests and say, Jesus, here it is. Here's the good things. Here are the bad things. Here are the ugly things. Here's the mediocre things. Here's everything. And everything was just driving you to Jesus. Do you know what that would do with your relationship with Jesus? And what if you would get so tight with Jesus that nothing could get between you and him? By the way, do you know what we call people who live like this? Yeah, we call them Christians. I want to be one, don't you? And what is the Christian mindset in every circumstance? It's Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus, would you get involved in the middle of this? Hey, Jesus, would you get in involved in the middle of my grocery shopping? Hey, Jesus, I'm eating dinner. Oh, I love these green beans. These are the best green beans. Thank you, Jesus, for green beans. See, what if everything would cause you to be pressed to Jesus? And he would, be getting, he would invite him in and you would involve him in the everyday moments of your life. He is the ruler of the universe, and he does have a lot going on. But you realize he does want to be intimate in the everyday details of your life. Those are not too small. He doesn't want to just handle the big stuff. He wants to handle the little stuff. He doesn't want to just be in your life on Sunday mornings or just in your life for 15 minutes every morning. He wants to be in the everyday moments of your everyday living. I want that. Lord, uh, Lord, we invite you into the everyday moments of our life. Lord, what would it look like practically if everything would drive us to you? Lord, could you give opportunities today that, that this wouldn't just be theoretical or, wow, that's, a, that's an interesting thought, but that we would actually invite you into the everyday moments of our, of our life, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the ugly stuff, the difficult stuff, the exciting stuff, the happy stuff, the sad stuff. 
Lord, don't let me live in anxiety where my focus is on me and what am I going to do and how am I going to handle it and how am I going to fix it. And Lord, could I take every care, every worry, every concern, every anxiety and roll it upon you, submit it to you, hand it over to you, cast it upon you because you care for us. And Lord, what if I would just get wrapped up in this idea of prayer? That's not just mumbling words or, or going through some verbiage or what if I had a constant intimacy and communion with you? Well, what would it look like if everything in my life was pressing me unto you? Lord, could I begin to form the habit of inviting you into everything in my life? Whether it's seeing the sunrise or eating green beans or checking out of the grocery line or going down to the job or spending time with the family or whatever it may be in conversations. Well, what would it look like if you were the undercurrent of everything in my life, that I was constantly just throwing things to you, saying, Lord, could, could you get involved in this? Could you handle this? Could you give me insight in this? And, and I actually lived like a branch connected to a vine, where I was abiding in the life of the vine, where I was surrendered to the life of the vine, where I was dependent upon the life of the vine. Lord, this isn't about me doing things for you. This is me coming and having intimacy with you, and Lord, a branch in and of itself can do nothing. And any branch that thinks it can do things on its own is only good to be thrown into the fire because all it does is wither up and die. Lord, we want branches that bear fruit. Abundant fruit. Much fruit. But Lord, the only way that's going to happen in my life is when I stay connected to the vine. And the life of the vine flows into the life, becomes the life of the branch, which then produces the fruit. So, Lord, what would happen then if every gust of wind and every rainstorm and every thunder, every thunder crack and every drift of snow would only cause the branch to grip the life of the vine even tighter? Lord, I want to do that with you. Jesus, somehow... In this sea of turmoil of which we are living, could you cause us to be islands of tranquility, places of peace, places of prayer, that somehow this world looks upon us and just says, wow, they must be Christians. That they're not pushed around by every wind and, and wave and storm. And that there is this peace which surpasses all understanding that is guarding our hearts and our minds through you. And Lord, what would it look like if in the midst of us being these islands that are just full of peace and prayer, that it begins to pull people into the reality of who you are? Because they just, they, just, oh, they just have to have what we have, which is you. Lord, there's a lot going on in our culture today. We need a proper mindset, a proper attitude, a proper focus. Lord, I am convinced that's you. So Lord, as we come up to this election, may it cause us to pray. As we see the economy, may it cause us to be pressed to you. When we look at what's going on in the church, when we look at what's going on in the culture, Lord, don't let that pull us from you. Push us toward you. Pull us, Jesus. 
And Lord, may nothing in our life produce anxiety and fear and worry and turmoil. Lord, everything in our life, Jesus, may it produce prayer, supplication, making requests with thanksgiving. What an incredible opportunity we have, Jesus, to be Christians. So let's not just talk it. Lord, let this be exhibited. And Lord, I pray that as these students are, are leaving today, I just ask that you would cause them to be islands of tranquility and the seas of turmoil in their homes, in their churches, in their communities, in their country. Lord, I pray that there would be no reason to fear, no reason for foreboding or worry, because greater is he who is within us than he that is in the world. And Lord, I pray that every pressing and every trial and every circumstance would only press them unto you. And that they would have a sweet, rich, deep intimacy because of the stuff that's swirling around them. That they become pictures in this generation of what men and women of God are supposed to think like and act like and talk like and live like. Lord, we want to be Christians. But Lord, we admit the only way that's ever going to happen is when we have you. Who is the fullness of life itself. So Lord, we surrender afresh. Say that we need you. And oh, how we love you. Lord, we give you the praise and the glory. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.